Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, looking back, loving forward. The theme of this year's Boston Pride celebration, acknowledging advancements in gay rights and commemorating seminal historical events like the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. Part of the reflection on LGBTQ history of the last century is the painful absence of what could have been the blank spaces left by the thousands of people lost during the AIDS crisis, among them trailblazing artists, activists, and other cultural icons. Now a new web series out of San Francisco is imagining a world in which those people never died. We're observing Pride Month this June through the lens of an imagined world called The Father's Project. Later in the show, it's the opening weekend of the Roxbury International Film Festival, New England's largest event celebrating filmmakers and the stories of people of color. A look at what's ahead during the 21st Roxbury International Film Festival. First, joining me from Sports Byline in San Francisco, Leo Herrera, San Francisco-based activist, writer, and filmmaker. He is the creator of The Father's Project, a new web series that imagines a world where the AIDS crisis has been stopped. Hello, Leo. Hello. And here with me in the studio, Russ Lopez, Boston History Project board member, historian, and author based in Boston and Provincetown, Massachusetts. His latest book is The Hub of the Gay Universe, an LGBTQ history of Boston, Provincetown, and beyond. Hello, Russ. Hi. Glad to have you. And also with me, Harold Dufour Anderson, Program Director at the New Hope Transitional Support Weymouth, member of the Fenway Health Board of Directors and former Boston AIDS Action Committee Multicultural Liaison. Hello, Harold. Hello. So I'm glad to have all of you here because you're representing the looking back and the loving forward, as the theme uh, would suggest here in Boston. So I'm starting with you, Leo Herrera. You're a filmmaker. And you had this idea of imagining the world in a real sense through film in your web series of what it would be like if the people who died from AIDS never died. Tell us how that project called The Father's Project came to be. Uh, Well, The Father's Project started about four years ago, and it was born out of the time when we were having a huge intercommunity conflict over the release of PrEP, which is the one-a-day pill, Truvada, um, that can prevent HIV in about 99% of the cases if it is administered correctly. And we were having a very, very um, angry and really a sort of tragic conversation within the community of uh, the stopping to use condoms and what it meant for HIV positive people and HIV negative people. And there was so much vitriol and PTSD. And I had a lot of questions because I had just recently gotten into a serodiscordant relationship with somebody who was positive and I wanted to get on this medication. And when I asked a lot of the my elders and the, the older men that I know, 
um, the answers to my questions were always so varied. And I realized how alone my generation is because of the lack of mentorship and the the lack of availability to that, the loss of spaces, the trauma that our community has in terms of AIDS and also in terms of the pharmaceutical company. So that's when I started to really feel as a 30-year-old at the time how much I lacked older men in my life and what had happened to them. And so that sort of started a therapeutic art process of me just imagining if AIDS never happened and then the project sort of snowballed from there. Um, we should mention that you're 38 so that people have a sense of, you know, where you yes. fit in the age spectrum. Well, I'm going to be 38 in a month, <laughs> but who's counting? Okay. All right. But the, but the point <laughs> is so that if people have a sense of where you fit in the age spectrum yes. as we're talking about the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. I wanted to take a clip from the episode two of The Father's Project, illustrating the magnitude of loss experienced by the gay community during the height of the AIDS epidemic. Kids today have no idea what it's like. If they took their phone and went through their whole contacts, and I just said, okay, now imagine that like one-third of these people are dead. That's what AIDS was like. I'm sure I would be different if AIDS had never happened. It sort of hardens you in a way. All that lost talent, those brilliant minds, what would they have created that would have changed the world? So that's from uh, episode two, because what you do in each of your pieces is first sort of give us a sense in the prologue of what the situation was, and then we go to the imagined piece where we will get to in just a bit, where you relive or reimagining a scenario in which that did not happen. But I want to pause now and go over to Russ because, you know, this is your area of expertise. You've been writing about uh, what happened uh, during the AIDS crisis here in Boston and Provincetown and really beyond, as you say, your book does. And the statistics are wildly grim. That's the best way I can put it. I, I wish you'd just let people know that at the height of the crisis here, what were the numbers? Well, Epidemiologists have been a little bit reluctant to actually come up with a percentage, even though my training was as an epidemiologist, not a historian. I said, well, I'm going to throw all caution to the wind. Um, it looks like in Massachusetts, about 10% of the generations of gay men affected by AIDS died. One out of 10. Now, that means that's the average. And so probably some men had fairly few Friends, loved ones died, and in some groups it must have been quite overwhelming. Well, actually it was overwhelming for everybody, but the numbers must have just been tremendous. Nationally, about half a million people died. That's comparable to the entire U.S. casualties in World War II. It is absolutely stunning to think. It, it's probably as high a death rate of anything in any group in modern times, I mean, you know, maybe since the bubonic plague in Europe in the 13th century, it really is more death experienced in peacetime than any place in any time in the world's modern history. That's my guest, Russ Lopez. He's a Boston History Project board member and historian, and he's writing about the AIDS history. And I just referencing back to Leo, who spoke first, who's the filmmaker, what he wanted to get through was, you know, the devastating impact of that loss. And, I, and you have just put it into statistical terms that people can understand. And over to you, Harold, because you're here and you got involved. Um, you were in France when the crisis started, came back and recognized that that 
if the numbers were that high among uh, the group that most people thought were it, the victims, the, this was a white gay man's disease, as you said, it was even higher in communities that were not getting the information, which were the African-American and poor communities that you were trying to connect to. Exactly. And so doing the early part of, of my experience, in, as you said, I was in France and there was hardly any conversation that anyone in the French gay community was having about this epidemic. So ultimately, I came back to the States and became involved with the AIDS Action Committee. And there was such deafening silence in communities of color that the committee, through lots of discussions in terms of assessing needs, decided that uh, it was important to have uh, a blackface conveying that message that this was an epidemic. Uh, at that point, we didn't have the sense it was an epidemic, but it was uh, certainly a burgeoning catastrophe that needed to be addressed. And the response that we got from communities of color was silence. And so if I can just quickly say that one of the ways in which we responded at the committee was to respond in artful ways, which is a project that I had something to do with the Bayard Rustin Community Breakfast, which is in its 38th year of, of... Well, you founded it. I founded it. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes, <and laughs> yes, you I, had more than something to do with it, yes. So, yes. so, so again, the yeah. point mm-hmm. is that art, uh, I feel, it has a way of reaching hearts and minds in ways that uh, political rhetoric does not. And so it's a response to the silence that we encountered in the early days of the epidemic. Since I don't assume that people know history, let me just explain that Bayard Rustin was uh, Martin Luther King's right-hand man. He was a strategist bar none. He, in fact, was the coordinator, the designer of the March on Washington, which is generally considered to be one of the largest and most successful social actions, uh, mass social actions in the United States and certainly in the civil rights movement. But he was a gay man. And Martin Luther King knew this. This was not acceptable at the time publicly and sort of, you know, kept his secret as he could. But they worked very well together. So that's the breakfast is in honor of him. And let me just pull out then what you said about uh, the art piece of this, about reaching people through art, which is exactly what Leo is doing with this Father's Project, uh, talking about the impact that you all have talked about in real numbers at the time. You are, in fact, his fathers, as he would say in this project. And what he goes on to then imagine now, okay, let everybody stay alive. So I want to have a clip from one of those one of these segments which imagines a time when everybody's alive. This is uh, from episode one of Fathers. And in this episode, this is a mock television documentary series discussing the origin of the so-called queer colonies. Because remember, everybody lived. The 1980s were a golden era for the gay population. It was a decade defined by a dominance of the arts, victories in politics and groundbreaking developments in healthcare. Among the many achievements was the founding of Stonewall Nation, a collection of queer communes. The nation was governed by a group of activists from the earlier gay liberation era. So Leo Herrera, filmmaker and founder of The Father's Project, you suggest in your fantasy here that if those people had alive, were alive, then gay people, gay communities would be much more well-known, would be public. There would have been communities out and about in many parts of the country. Yes. And I think going back on what we were speaking of before, so much of what the Father's Project is isn't just about 
the people that died. You know, AIDS created such a level of fear for a whole nother generation, which would have been mine. I don't know anybody directly that died of AIDS. I had a friend who did not go on his meds and nearly died of AIDS. But what's interesting to me and tragic for my generation is that the fear of AIDS and the the indirect impact that it had ended up causing several of my friends to die through addiction and through self-destruction, especially after they find out that they were HIV positive. I had several friends who went on such self-destructive binges that they died. And so one of the elements about the Father's Project is it also just imagines if that fear hadn't been so prevalent in our community and if that shame there's such a greek tragedy to aids because it took us in a place where we were experiencing this liberation and then to cut it short in such a violent and brutal way and in a way that kind of made people feel that shame that they were trying to run away from like that's what's fascinating to me about this whole thing and and also very tragic because I've had to feel it myself and now the generation that comes after me which has been enjoying Truvada as prep they're coming up in a in a world that doesn't have that fear anymore so the project is sort of a utopian at times almost cheesy version of what that could be because I think it's very important for us to keep AIDS in our imagination and in our art because that's how we'll figure out creative ways to take care of that PTSD. You know, I'm I'm 37 and I've just been on prep for years, but I got a little sick the other day and that first feeling in the back of my head is oh my God, did I zero convert? And that's such an old, I mean, I've been with that feeling for 20 years now. So the project is really imagining if that fear was gone and we had sort of merged the liberation that we were feeling in the 70s and had continued to go about that and all of these activists and politicians and artists and community leaders, if they had been able to create something. So that's where the idea of of these colonies came from. Before I get Russ, you, and Harold to respond to what Leo has just said, and by the way, that's my guest, Leo Herrera, San Francisco-based activist, writer, and filmmaker, and the creator of The Father's Project, a web series that imagines a world where the AIDS crisis has been stopped. I want to take just a little jig to the left or the right to talk about PrEP because it's now come up a couple times. PrEP is a, a medication, and we're, we're having this conversation right after a big announcement this past week in which a panel of distinguished scientists Uh, And clinicians have come together and made a recommendation, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, that give PrEP a grade A, which means that uh, insurers will now have to pay for it. That was not the case before. It's quite expensive. And PrEP, by the way, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, is a way for people who do not have HIV, as Leo has described, but who are at substantial risk of getting it to prevent HIV infection by taking a pill every day just to give a sense of how far we have advanced. Just a little coda, Gilead Sciences reached an agreement with the Trump administration to donate PrEP medication to the uninsured because the the recommendation was for private insurance people. They will provide it until 2025. So uh, the, the Trump administration has said they want to be on top of the AIDS crisis in the way that they haven't been to this point. 
And uh, this is one of the things that they encourage Gilead Sciences to do. It normally costs $1,600 to $2,000 a month. So just people understand what we're talking about. And so you really know what we're talking about. Here's an advertisement for Truvada, which is PrEP. I'm on the pill. I'm on the pill. I'm on the pill. I'm on the pill, too. But it's not birth control. It's Truvada for PrEP, a once-daily prescription medicine for adults that, when taken every day, along with using safer sex practices, can help lower my chances of getting HIV through sex. So I want to just, so people will have a clear sense of where we are, because at the same time that this information was coming out, there were celebrations around the country for Pride looking back at Stonewall Uprising 50 years ago and at a time where some of the conversation we're having now was just about to happen. Some of the crisis was in play. But I want to get both Russ, you, and Harold to respond to Leo, saying that he really wants this Father's Project to be about all those folks and the possibilities and that thing that stays in your head that it could come back again. Well, there's a couple things, not to get off topic, but just making PrEP available is not going to end the epidemic. I think that's one thing that's we've important learned, to say. <laughs> that those people with resources, if you have insurance, if you have great uh, social support, yes, I think it'll be miraculous. If you don't, if you're, margin- if you're marginalized or from a marginalized community, it's not the answer by itself. But I, thinking about the Father's Project, I just keep thinking of all the people who have been lost. Boston's Latino community, which I'm a member of, has been much smaller than the African-American community. And its leadership was wiped out mm-hmm. by uh, the plague. It probably set it back a generation, 30 years, because so many of the activists died. Just amazingly so. They're gone. And they were gone within uh, a couple of years at the very beginning of the epidemic. Um, by Certainly by 85, 86, they were wiped out. I keep thinking about my friends in college. Um, I actually graduated on June 5th, 1981, from Harvard, the day that the first CDC report on AIDS came out. So I feel like I'm I'm really part of the AIDS generation, uh, the, and the generation that suffered from AIDS. And as Leo pointed out, it isn't just the disease itself. It's that everybody who lived also had to deal with that fear that that they might die at any moment. And then you wonder, what, how did that shape their lives, right? Did some people not go to school because they thought that they weren't going to live? Did some people not become artists because they thought they weren't going to live? And then there were people who were traumatized by it when their loved ones, and so many loved ones died at a time when the government just didn't um, give a darn. I won't, I won't curse here, but I would be much more forceful if I wasn't on the radio. Understood. <laughs> um, what is the psychological effect of that? And I think that that's something that for a certain group of, of gay and, and, and trans people, I think, is part of that as well. I think that they'll never recover, even um, if they weren't sick. Harold, something that Leo has said, and I, and I want you to respond to all of this, is it either doesn't occur to people or they think about it every day of their lives. Well, I I think that at the heart of the AIDS epidemic are a host of comorbid issues that I think we need to address. And and Leo referred to uh, some of them, including trauma, but also the substance use disorder. But in addition, uh, homophobia, racism, class stratification. We're talking about PrEP. There are 
numerous uh, men of color uh, who are unable to access PrEP uh, because of lack of uh, health insurance. Now, I, I often say to the, the patients that I work with who are challenged with substance use disorder that we're living in God's promised land. Everyone has access to health care here in Massachusetts. But it's not the case in, in many, many other places where we have um, groups, uh, significant communities of, of gay uh, men of color who do not have access to PrEP. And, and the same issues that the, the fathers that Leo is referring to at the beginning of the ep- epidemic still exist. The racism, the, the social stratification, uh, th- these, these issues uh, are, are with us today. And I like to think that a, a creative response to some of these challenges is called for. And, and again, I believe in art and I believe that creativity drawing on historical precedent is, is important. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are filmmaker Leo Herrera, Boston History Project's Russ Lopez, and Fenway Health's Harold Dufour Anderson, you just heard him. We're discussing Leo's web series, Fathers, which imagines a world where many gay cultural icons hadn't been lost to the AIDS crisis and the history of AIDS in New England. Now, Leo, we should say that what you have done masterfully, by the way, it's an adult series, so... Adults should be looking at this because it's, you know, it's powerful information. But what you've done masterfully is is in imagining that world, but also addressing the history, led us to know a lot about some of the icons of history and to some of the events in uh, the history of LGBTQ uh, communities in America that I don't think and lots of people might have known. I know some of the big ones like Stonewall, maybe, but there are many little details that you've woven in to these fictional scenarios, which I think is very well done. Um, are you hearing from people that they are lear- they have learned more about the history and put that in the context of today in a way they hadn't before? senior series. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the most rewarding parts of the project. I've always been very interested in in queer history. So the idea to be able to create a piece that sort of educates people and presents these really wild notions of, you know, queer resistance or queer coexistence. And then you realize at the end of these episodes that not only are they all based on sort of real life figures or real life events or real things that were begun but were never ended every I should also point out that pretty much every scene in this fake documentary has been filmed at real utopian moments that we have nowadays which is why it's so cool to talk to somebody who's um done work in Provincetown's history because a lot of the project is based in Provincetown actually it was filmed um there I'd say about a third of it, because we are very good at creating these utopias. And I think people need to understand that we've had these beautiful, idyllic moments in our history, but that we're still continuing to have them. So to be able to kind of melt all that together into this really kind of um, elaborate history lesson, which at the end of the day is kind of like a bait and switch, because I'm telling you, like, this is what could have happened if this horrible thing hadn't occurred to us. But these things are actually filmed in real events. It's just a matter of how much of that utopian vision could have spread if we weren't so preoccupied with dying Mm -hmm. and with our friends dying and growing up in a world where, you know, we didn't have any mentors because they had died. And the ones that were left were so traumatized that it was very difficult for them 
I think, to communicate with my generation outside of an academic place. And if you grew up, you know, an undocumented immigrant like I did, I didn't have many avenues to get that history. So I think we still have that issue. We're barely thinking about having, you know, LGBT curriculums in school. So people need to get that history somewhere. And one of the best parts of the project is realizing how hungry we all are to learn our history. So the reaction to the project has been amazing because that's the first thing that people get very excited about because they didn't think they were going to learn about all of these other things as well. Thank you so much. That's my guest, Leo Herrera of San Francisco, who is the creator of The Fathers Project. So, Russ Lopez, your book is The Hub of the Gay Universe and LGBTQ History of Boston, Provincetown, and Beyond. And one of the things I learned from the, the three chapters that focus intensely on what happened uh, as the AIDS epidemic moved through this area was that, wow, it was a long time before anybody sort of locked into this is serious. Yeah, it, it was really kind of interesting. I mean, and again, it's it's always weird to write history that when you were in the middle of it. And I only wish I had an iPhone so I could have, you know, recorded and taken pictures and, and video of things were going on. At first, it was a very private reaction, right? And partly it was it was a response to homophobia, right? Because the first thing people said is, oh, it's the promiscuous ones. It's the drug users who get sick. And people go, well, you know, I'm not promiscuous and I'm not a drug user and so therefore I'm safe and of course it's absolutely wrong people try to do things like well I'm only going to go home with men who are just very very physically strong right they look, they look very healthy right well we now know that was worthless right um, so people kept making compromises rather than accepting that they were in the middle of this horrendous thing. Um, and then it set in, right? And then it was just panic, right? Because nothing you did could save you, right? First of all, it turned out that you had to look back 10 years for when you might be infected to when you first got sick. So there was nothing you could do. And then, then there was a test, right? And the test was worthless. It could tell you you were exposed, they said. Some people go, well, the test doesn't mean you're infected. It just means you were exposed. Well, now we know that wasn't true either. It meant that you were had an active infection, right? And then, you know, we thought, well, some people seem to go forever. Of course, it was up to 10 years without getting sick. So maybe I won't get sick. And we know that except for very few lucky people, that's not the case. And then finally, by oh, maybe the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, it was like, okay, there was just nothing you could do. I mean, you could wear condoms, you know, use condoms, whatever, and, and be in a relationship with somebody that hopefully was also not infected. But there was really nothing at that point you could do. And then you had the sort of the, the pushback from, you know, government agencies and the fright of medical personnel, which, you know, if you have a disease and medical personnel are frightened, well, that's a bad place to be in. And so much miscommunication about, you know, how the disease was passed on. So there was all of that as well. And in the midst of actually a community coming to be an activist one on its own behalf. So one of the things that I appreciated in your book was you said, really, the LGBTQ community had to save itself in order to be able to get to a point where other people could say, okay, we're, yes, we're paying attention to what's happening here. Harold DeFora Anderson, you said something that I think is really important on so many levels, which is that the fathers that Leo Herrera is uh, referencing in his project 
because of what happened to their loved ones or to themselves if they were survivors, developed a kind of resiliency that does not, you think, exist in Leo's generation, frankly. Um, I wish you'd speak to that. Well, I I actually disagree uh, respectfully. Uh, I think that, at the risk of sounding overly romantic, that some of the greatest art is created in the darkest of times. Uh, And I want to give, as an example, Marlon Riggs, uh, who has some history with public broadcasting Mm -hmm. uh, in his... Filmmaker. uh, Filmmaker. Tongues uh, untied. Tongues untied. Black is, black isn't, urban notions. Go ahead. So there's a direct (laughs) line from Marlon Riggs's Tongues Untied to In Living Color in 1990. Paris is Burning in 1990. Tarnation in 2003. To Pose in 2019. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. So so the legacy of, of great artists that lived during the darkest of the times of the epidemic uh, have passed on something to us that uh, enlivens us, that helps us to, to, to continue to be creative and to resist, to be resilient, to be strong, to endure. So I, I, I believe that in spite of all of the, the comorbidity that uh, we referred to earlier, I think that we have something that will sustain us as long as we remain focused and diligent. But do you believe that your generation has a different level of resiliency than Leo's generation? I don't think that we have been a different. I don't think that we were uh, chosen uh, in, in any uh, sense of the term in that way at all. I think that uh, we deal with the hand that was dealt to us in ways that the bottom line is survival. And so we attempted to survive in any ways that we can. And so you have the development of ACT UP, for instance, mm. you know, that kind of fight. I mean, so in today, what do we have? We have Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. We also have uh, black love matters. And so I think that, you know, the, again, I'm, I'm back to the, the sense that creativity draws on historical precedent, and there is historical precedent for, for everything that exists today. Leo, as often happens when people imagine, mm-hmm. sometimes what you imagine is actually starts to happen. It becomes real. But I mention that because in one of your episodes, the queer colonies, which now exist everywhere, decide it's time to run a candidate for the president. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there is a gay guy yeah. running for president right now in real life, not in your fantasy. Exactly. So uh, <laughs> I wondered which came first. No, okay. that idea was one of the first ones. I started writing that in 2014. So I've had to mm. change a lot of the episodes now because, you know, it's not such a wild idea that we would have a gay candidate for president. So sometimes the project has a little life of its own and it's got its own little jokes for me (laughs) to figure out and to navigate. (laughs) But, you know, I started writing about prep before prep even existed when I was 26 because I was working on this novel and it imagined this future where people would take this thing called a viral transmission inhibitor. And it was about how our culture could have changed because there was such a yearning for me to sort of be free from this constant fear that my generation lived under as well. Now, your project, you raise funds for it, and you the funds are being donated to the uh, museum in uh, San Francisco. Let's speak a little bit about that, because that's part of the continuation of this history. Yeah, so I work with the GLBT Historical Society here in San Francisco, 
And I've worked with them for more than a decade on other projects. I was able to shoot the suit that Harvey Milk was assassinated in when I was 23, and that changed my life. So I've had a, a relationship with them for a really long time, and they are our fiscal sponsor for this project. So when people donate, it's a tax-deductible donation that goes through them. And then I also do a lot of research in their archives to find some of these you know, lesser-known figures or lesser-known ideas. So I'll let you have the last word on how you would like those who heard this conversation to, you know, what you'd like them to take away from from what you're trying to do and what they've heard here from the fathers, some of the fathers who lived through the experience, and from you who are trying to figure it all out through this work. Well, I think going back on what we were speaking of, of in times of crisis, you know, this is when we sort of create the most beautiful art, and there's always been a correlation to that. As in, I lived most of my life as an undocumented immigrant up until not that long ago and was able to be naturalized. So for me to be from a poor Mexican family, undocumented immigrants all our lives, it's a really tough time right now to be Mexican and to be queer. And for me, a lot of the reaction to that has been, instead of getting sort of lost in the darkness of this political landscape, is to create something that's so beautiful and utopian, because I think there's sort of a, a powerfulness to that. And what I want people to take away from the project is a piece of their history and for them to understand that AIDS has shaped many generations and will continue to shape it and to understand however my day might be tough sometimes dealing with some of the the really horrible things coming out of this administration my friends are still here and even though some of them may not be because of what the fear of aids did to them um i'm not going to four funerals a week you know and i have to have a, a level of perspective with that and a level of respect for the generation that came before me so all you can sort of do is learn as much as you can and create as much as you can to sort of be an antidote to that fear and i think we all have a little bit of responsibility for that as queer people because we want to be able to pass on a better world for the next generation just how we were given a better one as well well, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you all for joining me. Leo Herrera is a San Francisco-based activist, writer, and filmmaker. He is the creator of The Fathers Project. Russ Lopez is a board member of the Boston History Project, as well as a historian and author. His latest book is The Hub of the Gay Universe, an LGBTQ History of Boston, Provincetown, and Beyond. And Harold Dufour Anderson is the program director at New Hope Transitional Support, Weymouth, as well as a member of the Fenway Health Board of Directors and former AIDS Action Committee Multicultural Liaison. Coming up, from the life and work of Toni Morrison to the illegal gold mining in Ghana, this year's Roxbury International Film Festival offers a rich program of films, documentaries, and shorts screening around Boston this week. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. The 21st Roxbury International Film Fest kicked off last week. Its program includes 68 films focusing on narratives of people of color from around the country and the world. The festival this year is bookended by two documentaries, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, a deep dive into the celebrated author's life and work with interviews with her contemporaries and Morrison herself. And Don't Be Nice, which follows a team of young New York City slam poets on their journey to the National Slam Poetry Championships during the summer of 2016. Here to tell us more about what's on this year's program, Lisa Simmons, Festival Director at the Roxbury International Film Festival. Welcome, Lisa. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's always good to have you. And joining me from NP in New York, Nikhil Malnichuk, New York-based poet, actor, and filmmaker, and the producer of Don't Be Nice. Hello, Nikhil. Hello, Ms. Crossley. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. I'm delighted in general always to talk to you, Lisa, about the Roxbury International Film Festival, your baby, 21 years now, uh, and it keeps going strong and getting better. Uh, 68 films out of 300 choices. How did you make the decision? It's always an incredibly difficult choice. I mean, each year it gets harder and harder because there's so many more incredible stories that come to us. So we have a committee, and uh, and we really sort of focus on what these films are bringing to our audiences, to the Boston audience, and what you know, we sort of now have a pretty good idea of what they want to see. Um, and so it's really sort of a, a a really deep dive into how we can make that happen and how we can bring shorts and features and filmmakers in to have this, like, incredible, educational, inspiring, um, entertaining festival that uh, that people can learn from and people can enjoy. Um, the narratives that you want to see in this festival are about and you know, by people of color, uh, for the most part. Um, And I'm wondering if in the 21 years you've seen a change now in uh, what's possible for those filmmakers. Uh, For so long, it's still a struggle. We're not going to be sugarcoat that part. But for so long, it was a real struggle. You could barely get any of these films before any audiences. And now because of of uh, film festivals like RFF, you you can do so. Is it better now? It's inc- it's so interesting to have seen the trajectory from you know first film festival to now, and just and, and it's really technology also that is giving people the opportunity to go out there and and hear these stories and and you know get these stories and be able to present them to an audience. So I think that that's a big part of it and that women are, there's so many more women that are getting into the filmmaking world and being recognized because those voices and those stories have been silenced for so long, just like the voices of people of color. And what's what I find really interesting is that people feel this need to sort of um, you know, reclaim history and to counter narratives and to make sure that the history that's being told is a truthful history. There's so much that's left out of what we uh, were told growing up. There's so much that was left out of, um, you know, in mainstream media that we don't hear all the wonderful, positive, great stories of young black men and young black women that are doing things in this country or and even around the world uh, that we don't see in mainstream media. So I think that, um, yeah, it's really great to to have seen this happen. And now there just seems to be this incredible uh, thirst for black content and black and brown content. 
and it's not the black and brown content where it's you know gang life and uh, you know one just one narrative. It's it's look people are looking for all sorts of of narratives, and I think that's what's changing is that uh, there is now a place where people can distribute and exhibit those films. Well, uh, certainly one of a great one this year, one of the 68. Uh, Nikhil, you made it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't Be Nice is so I interesting. To... I just loved it. I love a competition film anyway. Mm. Um, and your your film is about this team of the slam poets trying to make it to the, to the big time in the nationals. And I want to first play a clip from the film and then come back out and talk to you about all of it. This is one that I just thought was Wonderful. so great. This is Bowery Slam team coach Lauren Whitehead after the Boston Regional Competition. Slam, to me, sort of outlived its usefulness. The goal was to get people excited about hearing poems and, to, and excited about literacy and to think about poetry in a new way. And now it has created a sound and people really um, are loyal to that sound, are loyal to what, that, what a slam poem looks like or feels like or does and they all sound the same, and they all have the cadence, and they talk about the same subject matter, and they're pitching the same message. I want our team to move people, and I feel like you do that by being courageous and vulnerable and telling a truth that's scary. That's what I'm looking for. So, as I said, that's Bowery Slam team coach Lauren Whitehead, who is coaching the team to victory, or she hopes to victory, but she's really pushing them uh, in terms of developing their art. And um, I wanted to play that clip because it's so counterintuitive. So it's a film about slam poets, and you figure everybody in it is like, yeah, yay, slam. And she's really expressing, Nikhil, um, that slam needs to go someplace else in really connecting with the audience. Well, you totally caught us. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad you chose that clip as well because uh, I think that was one of the reasons we made the film was to be part of this ever-evolving spoken word uh, journey. I mean, spoken word really came to the forefront uh, in the mid to late 80s. And uh, every generation, and the generations are shorter and shorter of poets now. I mean, it seems like uh, we keep seeing uh, changes in the way spoken word is perform the demographics of who are doing it, what the messages are constantly. And we at, uh, I was at Bowery Poetry at the time, and we felt that um, there was some stagnancy in the form and uh, that it needed to be moved forward. It needed to, uh, there needed to be something that came in and helped shake it up as it was moving more and more into the mainstream. Um, because as you say, you know, this is a competition film and there is that competitive element to spoken word. But it can't just be that. It can't just be about winning. It's, it's, it's got to always come back to the artistry and uh, the individual messages of, of, of the poets and, and the content of the poetry. When did you know that this would be a, a great film, watching this process? Because you started right after the, the five team members were chosen and then followed them all the way through. You know, I uh, I knew that there would there would be something special here the first night of the Bowery Slam, and uh, we'd hired this brilliant, brilliant poet Ashley August to be Slam Master, meaning to host a show every Monday night and to uh, bring in poets, reach out to the uh, spoken word com- community, and invite people to come and perform. And I saw that show. 
uh, and there was just an electricity that I hadn't seen it uh, in the poetry community for a while. And uh, so I started talking to some collaborators, Melina Brown from the Radio Drama Network, Max Powers, who's a, an editor and the director of this film. And uh, we started putting together that team that was going to create it. Well, um, here's the other thing. How, how uh, I, I know that, you know, this is a heartfelt, usually for most filmmakers, it's heartfelt as well as work. <laughs> you know, you don't just, yes. it's not just something you just sort of do casually and then at night, you know, you go home and, and watch uh, Netflix. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're <laughs> I, I really into Netflix it. Netflix <laughs> for two years, essentially. <laughs> exactly. I'm two years behind on all the shows. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so a couple of things. First of all, I was surprised to learn that Boston was considered a real um, intense place for uh, regional slam competition. So that's yeah. interesting. I'll be taking a look at that uh, going forward. And the other part of this is I was... Um, I, I was thinking to myself, how do you, as a as a filmmaker who has been in the film festival once before, uh, approach getting your new film um, into a festival? I mean, do you think because you were in before, maybe now you, you have another shot? Um, is it less difficult? You know, what's what's the what's your experience as a filmmaker, as a and particularly one of color right now? Absolutely. Well, first, I'd like to shout out to the Boston slam poetry community. Um, there's an amazing slam that happens at the Haley House, and that's actually where we filmed uh, the Boston Regional Slam se uh, sequence in our film. And there is an incredible spoken word scene in Boston. I mean, there's there's so many universities, and we, f we see that uh, that's where a lot of the slam poets are coming out of um, and then looking for a place to go after they get out of college. So... Places like Haley House that are hosting slams are just uh, essential to what's happening uh, with the spoken word movement. And uh, then your, your question about film festivals. Well, you know, for, for an, an art film like this, film festivals are, are really the, the path into uh, consciousness and mainstream. And it's just an uh, incredible opportunity to, to be recognized and to be screened by a a prestigious festival such as as Roxbury International Film Festival. I, I produced a short last year called FIVA, um, done by the brilliant Randall Dotton, uh, starring Melissa Jackson, Russell Hornsby, and Lorraine Hawkins. And we were we were honored to get that film into the festival. And um, you know, you when, when you go to a festival or when your film is a part of a festival that that has such prestige and also uh, connects with the community so strongly. Uh, you hope that you can bring future films back to the festival, but you know, as as Miss Simmons said, you, there are hundreds and hundreds of submissions, and uh, the films that keep getting better every year. It seems mm -hmm. like so. Uh, you know, you you hope that you've uh, continued to make good work, and that uh, programmers will will continue to recognize that. But it's by no means a shoe in. Mm -hmm. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Roxbury International Film Festival director Lisa Simmons and filmmaker Nikhil Malnichuk. You just heard him. We're discussing the lineup at this year's Roxbury International Film Festival, where Nikhil has a film called Don't Be Nice. One more cut from Don't Be Nice. Everybody else has to go see it in the festival. <laughs> um, this Please is do. a this is a really uh, joyous one. This is the group of Bowery poets: Ashley August, Joel Francois, Sean. Mega Devinias, I think, and Tim Timothy Divine. Dwight are performing their poem. Uh, it's called Google Black, and they want people to get black references. So, again, these are the Bowery poets from the film Don't Be Nice. 
If someone says Candyman three times and you see bees, Google, Google it. it. If I say Devo coming and you don't tuck in your chain, Google, Google it. it. We're running and I yell, Ricky! Google it. <laughs> I just thought that was funny, uh, Lisa. I love I, I love the variety that you have. Something that's uh, so interesting and um, has shades of heavy and light in that film. Don't be nice. But also, you kicked off with the Toni Morrison documentary, which is getting a lot of attention, um, and it was done by uh, Timothy. Saunders Green and um, or is it Green Saunders? Greenfield Saunders. Sa- Green, Greenfield Saunders. I always mix that up. Timmy <laughs> <laughs> Greenfield Saunders, um, who people may know from a series on HBO called uh, The Blacklist. Uh, this is quite an in, uh, an intense and powerful film, but it's also so warm with uh, Toni Morrison, who's kind of a tough cookie. Unbelievable. I mean, it really <laughs> is. An, so it's so funny because we were trying to figure out where we really wanted this film. We went after it. Um, and um, so the uh, one of the producers, uh, Danielle, we were going back and forth. And so she was like, well, it's opening in Boston and it's opening here. And we're like, when is it opening? And they couldn't tell us. And finally it was like, well, it's opening on June 21st. Uh, limited and then 28th in Boston. I was like, oh my gosh, we got to push this. So we said, let's open with it. Um, and uh, and it was just the perfect open because, you know, and we had, we've been saying to people and to them, Boston loves Toni Morrison. I mean, everyone loves Toni mm-hmm. Morrison, but the Boston audience is so different. And and I don't know if Nikhil will, will, will speak to this, but, you know, when you, when filmmakers come to screen in Boston, they're not like used to sort of the questions and the, and the way that the, our, our audience members are so passionate about, not about how they shot a film, but like the content of it. And they really ask deep questions about the content. Mm-hmm. So we really felt like Toni Morrison opening up uh, the festival would be perfect. And because, and you're, and you, you said it right, the bookend with Don't Be Nice. So we open with the, you know, this, incredible woman who you know won the Nobel Prize uh, in literature and is you know and is a goddess to so many and then we move to the next generation of don't be nice who are slam poets but telling their story in in, in a different way and I think that like you said we've sandwiched a lot of films in between that a lot of them that are telling stories that we've never seen before that are raising you know voices that have never been raised before and that's what's you know that's sort of like who we are as the film festival, right, is to be able to bring those voices to light. That's right. Here's a a clip from Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am by uh, Timothy Smith. (laughs) It's Greenfield Saunders. I always do that wrong. Um, And she's explaining here the origin of her name, Chloe. People mispronounce it all the time. They said Chlo. Even my teachers. (laughs) Chlo, Clow, or Clovis. So I just shortened it to my saint's name. And then, of course, the married name, Morrison. It's a way of dividing your life. One of those names is the person who is out there. And the other one is the one who isn't, who doesn't do documentaries. Um, The thing I like about this film is that... um, uh, Timothy as director, but Sandra Guzman, a Latino a documentary filmmaker in her own right, did the interviews and was able to elicit this warmth from Toni Morrison, this intimacy, these stories that we had not heard from her. But also there are many people uh, who speak about her work and who respond to her to her legacy. And one of them is uh, David Caruso, who is at Harvard. And just, let's just listen to this small cut about his uh, experience traveling to Mexico with Toni Morrison. 
somebody else on the stage said, would you like us to translate, to have a simultaneous translator into Spanish of what Toni Morrison reads and says in unison from the audience, it was, no, we want to just hear Toni Morrison. We understand her because we're in her language too. They know that there's a freedom in this woman's language. She took the canon of the written language and she broke it open. She's the Emancipation Proclamation of the English language. Well, it's more well. than yeah, that's just a, that's just a fantastic comment. Oh right. It's a fantastic, it's unbelievable. Film. It really is. I mean, it's really uh, you, you can't go wrong with doing that. But that's just the kind of piece that you would have in the RFF. Yes. I want to also highlight other films that um, you have in the in the series. One of them is about the Green Book, uh, the real Green Book, not the, the movie. The real one. The, yes. <laughs> the movie that people are familiar with that got quite a bit of attention during the Oscar season. Uh, no, this is a documentary about actually. What happened? Here's a little piece from the trailer of this uh, Green Book documentary. There were all kinds of businesses listed, just what you would find in a AAA guide, but also very telling in terms of how many areas of black people were shut out of. It uncovers the hidden truth about the African-American community. It allows us to really just simply embrace the genius of us. The Negro Traveler's Green Book. The guide to travel and vacations. Travel-wise people carry a green book with you. You may need it. And I understand, Lisa, that you have done a temporary installation to go along with the Green Book documentary and the film festival, which is to identify the Green Book locations here in Boston. Exactly. So uh, <laughs> when we decided to bring this film in, we wanted to sort of make it a little bit more local. And I think what people don't understand is that there are Green Book sites here in Boston. And when you say that to people, they're like, what, Boston? Like, Boston have, had to have a Green Book? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, so the film, uh, we have a map that you can take with you. And uh, we have put up some signs in some places. Some of them are private residences and we can't do that. But I think what we're going to be doing after this festival is, is really working maybe with the city of Boston or someone to sort of figure out if there's a way that we can we can do some sort of permanent um, plaques pl in places to say that this is a, a Green Book site and what that means and sort of maybe have uh, a website on that so people understand that. But it's uh, it was really enlightening to look at that and to see that and to understand, you know, mostly in the South End and a little bit in Roxbury, too, uh, that there were the restaurants like Slade's and Charlie's and, um, and people having homes. Uh, that they gave out, that they opened up to visitors. Um, so tourist homes, they called them. And, and it's really, it's an incredible story. And I think that it's, you know, just like we talk about, we have been talking about, it's just, it's important to unearth the history because we need to know our history in order to go forward, right? And we're not told that history. And I think that film is such a medium that is, you know, is able to do that and able to help do that. And we're such a visual culture now that uh, there are these great opportunities to tell these stories visually and to get those um, to get those voices heard. I think that's really important. So as we close in this brief conversation, there are so many more films. As I said, there are 68 and it's international. So there's some international pieces that people should pay attention to as well. Um, Lisa, about uh, integrating art into the community, this seems to me that this, the Roxbury International Film Fest is no longer uh, just sort of an event anymore. Um, just as we just discussed, the Green Book installation connected to it, it's really integrated into the flow of what is art here. It really is important to to us to to be able to 
marry a lot of the things together. Like um, for for Nicole's film, we are having a bunch of slam poets come in and perform uh, before uh, before the film screens, and I, I just think it's really important to sort of connect it to local. It, it's a way for us to keep it local. Also, is to connect the films if they're international to bring in a local component to it. I mean, it's part of the festivals like that, right? Our our mission is still to support local filmmakers, but it's it, what's wonderful about having it international and countrywide is that those filmmakers come in and everyone gets to meet everybody. And it, and in this business, it's all about networking, right? Mm-hmm. So um, so we really want to do that, and we want to bring in other parts of the arts, uh, whether it's visual or, um, yeah. So I think it's really I think it's great, and I think. You're right. It, it it all it all ties together in one way or the other. <laughs> Nikhil, you get the last word. Um, uh, encourage people to come out because the festival is ongoing. We've got some more stuff, including your film, uh, yet to see uh, in the upcoming days. And why not just film buffs? This is open to this should this should attract all kinds of folks uh, to the festival. Make the case. Absolutely. <laughs> well, first of all, the case the case for our film. You might never have been to a spoken word poetry event or a, a slam event, but you're going to hear some of the most uh, inc- incredible, incredible young people speak their truth directly to you. You're going to need to bring some tissues because it's very emotional and it's also an uplifting film. And I think you're going to see a lot of films like that at uh, the Roxbury International Film Festival if you come out. Um, I think the incredible thing about film festivals is you see a curated selection of some of the best new films that are coming, uh, that are going to come out the following year, perhaps. Um, so you get to be on the forefront of what's happening in the film world. You get to be part of that uh, vanguard of the film scene. And you also get to see, um, as Ms. Simmons was saying, voices and stories that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise hear in the mainstream. Um, so you can get to be part of that conversation. Well, as the uh, young people say in your film, word. congratulations to you and thank you both for joining me thank you so much for having us thanks for having me Lisa Simmons is the festival director at the Roxbury International Film Festival and Nikhil Malnichuk is a New York based actor, poet and filmmaker he's the producer of the new documentary Don't Be Nice which will be showing at this year's Roxbury International Film Festival on June 29th Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org slash news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and John Parker. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.